This episode of Finding Common Ground is brought to you in part by Edward Elmhurst Health. I'm Dana Davenport and welcome to Finding Common Ground, a show on Naperville Community Television focused on important current events and how they impact our diverse population. We are many voices of one community, often with strong opinions on every side of an issue. And I'm Rebecca Malaki Meslin. The president released his 100-day plan, which included a $1.9 trillion stimulus package and $400 billion going to COVID. Information about vaccine availability and distribution is updated frequently, leaving many people wondering how and when they'll be able to get it. Still others are worried about the vaccine's rapid development, efficacy, and side effects. We're discussing the local impact of this national initiative and here, through courageous conversation, in the interest of discovering collaborative solutions, we hope to find our common ground. Joining us today for this important discussion are Dr. Rashmi Shung, Medical Officer for the DuPage County Health Department, Dr. Kevin Most, Chief Medical Officer for Northwestern Medicine Central DuPage Hospital, and Dr. Jonathan Pinsky, Medical Director of Infection Control and Prevention at Edward Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us today. With all of the resources now available to us at the federal level, how does that impact us locally? Well, we are certainly very appreciative and dependent on the support we receive federally because it's um, the strategy and the um, goals are laid out at the national level and then directed and um, it, uh, communicated to the state level and then from Illinois Department of Public Health and the state in the governor's office, then we receive our direction and uh, and funding. So, so it really flows from the federal to the state to the local levels. Yeah, and Rashmi, I would add that although the question may have been asked about financial, you're talking to three physicians, many of us, probably two of the three of us don't even balance our checkbooks. So we are really looking at it more of a supply issue and how are we getting the vaccine, getting the testing done, and getting the vaccinations in the arm. It's nice knowing that we have the funding there, but you have dollars versus product, and we want to make sure that we have the right product. I know Jonathan's patients are looking forward to being vaccinated, and I'm sure he's looking forward to being able to take care of less COVID patients um, uh, as the vaccines roll out. Yeah, and I would add, I also think just having a plan is reassuring. I, I looked through this and I think it's goal number two, mount a safe, effective, comprehensive vaccine campaign. campaign. And it rolls through, up through a lot of general principles about um, uh, producing more vaccine, um, getting the vaccine allocated quickly, um, places where the vaccine is going to be distributed, and just kind of gives you an idea of the timeline. So just the fact that that's happening is, is reassuring. And I, I think our patients are a lot of them are very anxious. They don't know when they're going to get that vaccine. They don't know how long it's going to take, even if they're in that, that category where they may be allowed to get the vaccine, the availability might not be there. So, so I think just to have, have this laid out as a plan um, is, is greatly needed. I feel like there's been a lot of rumors about uh, a lack of supply. And on the other hand, we've heard stories about there's plenty of supply. It's the distribution that's problematic. What are you hearing and what have you experienced? Well, I can I'll jump in first and just tell you from a local level, and then Rashmi could probably join from the county level because we are we are all partners in this. 
um, you know, the county is actually the holder of the vaccine and distributes it to the Edward Elmhurst, uh, the CDHs, the, the hospitals and the health systems um, uh, in the county. So we have had ample supply up to this point because we were focusing on that 1A classification, which has really been the healthcare providers. And we've been fortunate to get them vaccinated with both doses and get them protected with very good compliance and, and great people stepping up to get this done. As we roll out now and go to 1B, where we're talking about close to 400,000 people in the county that may fall under 1B, or 300,000, you know, that's where we're gonna be concerned about the, the supply of it and how we're gonna distribute that. And we're gonna look to the county uh, as our partner to get it to the providers that can get the shots in the arms a lot quicker. Yes, I agree. I think, sorry, I was just mad that um, that vaccine supply is, like you said, Kevin, gonna be a much um, more significant issue in the coming days and weeks. Um, really, the more stable the vaccine supply is and the more we know in advance, then the better we can plan for the coming weeks. Um, and another one of the, another aspect that complicates this a little bit is that this is a two-dose series, the vaccines that are currently approved. So we need to not only plan for the initial dose, but then the subsequent uh, dose, which is at a three or four week interval, depending on the vaccine. So we need to make sure that our schedules can accommodate not only an ongoing stream of first dose individuals, but then those who need to complete the series for their second doses. And I think a point of clarification is when you get the first dose, are you automatically um, registered or eligible for the second dose? Certainly yes. eligible, but I would say it's, um, as far as the scheduling, that's specific to the vaccination site. Yeah, I could tell you the logistics, and I'm sure it's the same as Edward Elmhurst as it is at Northwestern. Our goal is to make sure that when the individual leaves after their first shot, they know exactly when their second shot is going to be there, that we don't have to chase them later, that we don't have to do anything else, but that they know. That'll only just make sure that our compliance is much higher for that second vaccination. Yeah. Right, and I think when, when uh, we were allocated the, the doses of the Pfizer initially, we were told that those would all be followed up with a, with a second dose and the same thing with Moderna. So we don't have to worry about, um, you know, everyone who gets the first dose is kind of guaranteed that they're going to get that second dose. Could you talk to us a little bit about the communication and the cooperation between Naperville and the County Health Department and how uh, that communication back and forth goes with the supply and then setting up centers to make sure that uh, when this next phase rolls out, that folks are able to get access to the vaccinations? Sure, and we're still relatively early in uh, vaccine um, allocation and distribution, but from the onset of COVID-19, we've been communicating very regularly with um, our municipality mayors and managers um, on a weekly basis, at least, and in between as needed. Um, but we've been, for several months now, I've been, um, getting along regularly and are getting along well and communicating um, very regularly, which has been so helpful, I think, and um, not only us being able to provide them with update, uh, the mayors and managers with updates, but then also to receive um, input on what concerns are from, um, you know, constituents and, and uh, community organizations, as well as, you know, schools and um, 
businesses and every sector really to be able to understand and appreciate the, the challenges that we're all facing with. I mean, who knew, you know, a year, well, now it's been about a year, but really everyone's world has been turned upside down. Um, not just in public health, not just in healthcare, but every aspect of society has been impacted greatly. So, um, but yeah, certainly working very closely with Naperville as, as well as other municipalities um, to make sure that we're identifying vaccine providers in each community. And uh, again, like you said, to make sure that we're equitably able to um, provide access and then also communicating the um, the prevention and control, the containment and mitigation recommendations, um, and then um, really just, and then also making sure that they're aware of our, the health department um, vaccine clinics that are um, that are up and running. But then within the community, now that we have multiple health systems offering vaccine and expanding, now that we've just entered phase one B, uh, which, like Kevin said, broadens the population that's eligible. Um, so we want to make sure that we're um, communicate well to make sure that our vaccine supply as it allows um, is being administered and so people are getting vaccinated as much as possible. Can you tell us about who some of those people are in the 1B group? Both of you, some of you have mentioned that already and um, in terms of the numbers of, of how many vaccines you know we're getting, can, can you share a little bit more information about that? How many and, and who would be eligible next? Yeah, as far as how many we get, boy, if you have the answer to that, we I have three people that are on this call and we'd love to know that. Um, but as far as who falls into that, it's all the ages, uh, people over the age of 65, and then the essential workers. So we're looking at the teachers, we're looking at grocery stores, we're looking at transportation. So all of those individuals fall into 1B. And Rashmi, if I'm not mistaken, 286,000 in DuPage County? Yeah, it, it's that's about it, and um, and it's the frontline essential workers, the ones who don't necessarily have the luxury of working from home, or um, you know, or can't always physically distance in the in their work setting. So it's really those who are at greatest risk of exposure, and then <clears throat> excuse me, as Kevin mentioned, the sixty-five plus population that is at greatest risk for severe outcomes. So it's um, it's kind of both. Um, aspects that have informed that uh, phase 1B priority group. And Jonathan, you could probably share the impact of the 1Bs. You know, those are the patients that you're seeing at the bedside every day and, uh, and how- uh, Right, and not only, not only those over 65, but the highest group, which are the people who live in nursing homes, and those were in the 1A right. category. So we were very happy to see that those were uh, population were vaccinated first. Uh, the nursing homes have really suffered from COVID. And, you know, I can say at our hospital, they compromise a large portion of our admissions. So just having those, that population vaccinated um, does take a burden off the hospital in terms of uh, the degree of illness. And, uh, you know, we know that uh, something like 40% of deaths were from, were from nursing home patients. So a lot of those elderly patients are in the nursing homes and they've already gotten the vaccine. So now they're reaching out to um, the people who live in the community that are now 65 and older that are also high, high, high risk. Um, I, I think something like 90% uh, of deaths are people over 60. So you, you, you'll get, you know, you'll capture that group with the over 65. 
There's been a lot of conversation about variants um, in the virus, not only in the United States, I think, but all around the world. And what are the conversations and concerns about the vaccination's efficacy with those variants that we're starting to see pop up now? So there's really three uh, variants that have uh, that we're aware of. Um, the largest one is in the UK, the B117 variant. Uh, that one uh, appears to be more transmissible, uh, but does not seem to be affected by um, the, the, the immunity or the neutralization from, from antibodies from people who have been vaccinated is almost as good as that as the native virus. However, that is not true for the, um, for the South African variant and the Brazilian variant. Um, both of those have diminished activity. Um, one of those was tested against plasma, and uh, many of those did not neutralize the virus. Um, and then I think the, I think it's the South African variant, Moderna tested it against their antibodies, and it didn't neutralize the virus, but not as strongly. The antibody levels were lower. So I think this is just the beginning, and, and as this virus continues to evolve, it is possible that it could undergo further mutations that could make the vaccine less effective. The good news is that mRNA vaccines can be updated very quickly. So Moderna is now working on um, an updated vaccine, and Pfizer will likely do the same. So it is, it is possible that that there may need to be boosters to update the mutations in this virus. But still, you know, vaccinations are our answer. You know, immunizations will be the fastest way to control COVID. Um, and I would just say that this more this is transmitted, the, the more opportunity it has to mutate. So the, the better job we do immunizing our population, um, the less likely it's going to be transmitted and, and you know, the less we have to worry about mutation. Jonathan mentioned something there that subtly may have been missed by many, but the vaccines that we have now that, that many people were concerned how rapidly they were brought to production, uh, we have to be very reassuring to individuals to make sure that they understand that we had 200 companies working on vaccines at the time. You know, this is unprecedented times and people say, well, you, it, in the past it took up to four years. How could it happen this quickly? That was 15 years ago. So much has happened in medicine. So much has happened in vaccines. And to Jonathan's point, we're concerned about the mutation and the effectiveness of the vaccine. But knowing that we can change this vaccine very quickly and that it's not going to take another nine months to do this. So I think that's very reassuring and, and people should not be hesitant to get the vaccine now because they're afraid that it's not going to work. Do, do yes, and another reminder that as we have high, still have high levels of community transmission, that we do need to continue the measures that we know work, such as masking and um, physical distancing, maintaining at least six feet apart between individuals not from our households and practicing good hand hygiene and avoiding in-person gatherings as much as possible because that's what will help break the cycle of transmission. And as Jonathan mentioned, it's that spread that increases the risk of uh, mutation. Like the more infection we have, the more viral replication we have, the more mutations can happen and then the, the more variants we can have. And that's what we want to try to interrupt and prevent. 
Do you think the COVID vaccination will be an annual vaccination like the flu shot? Will it be something that's recurring? You mentioned the booster. Right, so there's two issues with that. The first one that people were concerned about was does immunity wane? You know, and and the that we don't know the answer to. I think the the, the Pfizer and Moderna trials, they're gonna to continue to follow their subjects a month out. You know, the trial is still ongoing. So so they have not the, there have, are still people in that trial that have not received the vaccine yet. So we'll have a better idea how long-lasting the immunity is from that vaccine. Um, the second issue, though, is about mutation. You know, if there are mutations that make the antibodies less effective in neutralizing the virus, then we may need to be, have a booster from that perspective. So obviously, we don't know the answer to that, but those are the two areas of concern. There was a, a comment made just a moment ago about, you know, continuing all those other mitigation efforts, such as mask wearing. Um, I know there's been a lot of conversation about cloth masks first N95. Has there been any change in recommendations or protocols related to that and transmission? I think probably what you've seen recently is the concept of double masking. Mm -hmm. um, we all have to understand that when we first started with this uh, illness, we were wearing masks because we were trying to protect others. We were potentially asymptomatic and we were using a mask to make sure that we would not affect others if we were to be infected. Many people looked at the mask as being protective of themselves, when in fact the basic concept was to protect others. That's why we were masking. As we've gone on, we certainly have looked at the efficacy of masks. We know that you know, paper masks, the surgical masks, the cloth masks, we, we know how well they work. I would say that many people think that the N95 is the answer, but I can tell you I have seen so many people in the public with N95 masks on that don't wear them properly. The reason the N95 mask works so well, it has been fitted to your face, it's worn properly, and as Jonathan can tell you, it is not comfortable to wear for a long period of time. So. I think you'll probably see more people double masking now, and the concept of double masking not only protects you uh, from spreading any illness, but also from you from collecting any illness. And I'd love to hear my colleague Jonathan uh, uh, and what his thoughts are. Yeah, I don't think there's any change in the recommendations about wearing masks. I think that, you know, as these new variants are spreading in England, I think that you know, England is having many of the same problems that we're having as far as people following the guidelines. And, you know, I've seen pictures of, of these British pubs and you know, people in there drinking and not wearing masks. And, and so I think, I think it's their opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, lay the public health message again that, you know, everybody needs to follow the precautions, wear masks, distance, uh, stay at home if you can. Um, but these are the same recommendations. Sure, if you have a cloth mask, you know, you want to have layers to make it more protective. So I think a, a double mask, uh, some people are using that um, instead of having the layers, but it's the same concept. I think as the pandemic moves throughout different communities and people are becoming infected, um, surviving the pandemic, uh, being vaccinated um, and managing through that, just the fatigue of how long it's been, um, I think sometimes people are reluctant to continue to follow the guidelines. So, so what, what encouragement or what would you say as, as medical professionals, right, who are they're like, you know, I've been vaccinated 
or I've had COVID, um, you know, to, to continue to, to practice these measures that we're strongly still recommending even after you've been vaccinated? I can start. I mean, I just know that um, every day we put out our daily updates and it's um, heartbreaking to see the number of deaths that we are still experiencing as a community. I mean, these are our family, our friends, our colleagues, our coworkers that are all still impacted. And definitely it is our elderly um, that are uh, disproportionately impacted. Um, uh, and really it's what we want to try to prevent is premature death in all age groups, you know, and so there's our elderly and then there's um, really we have individuals in their 20s and 30s that have um, tragically died. And, um, and we have many uh, pediatric patients who have been hospitalized. So it's the impact has been severe across the community. So we just want to remind our neighbors and our friends that, um, that it's still circulating at a very high level. Um, we are down from where we were in October, November, thankfully, but we're still above where we were in the spring. Mm -hmm. So um, I know we're all tired of this and we would love to move on. And at least we have hope not only on the horizon, but we have vaccines here now. We just have to work our way through the different phases. And um, again, you know, based on vaccine supply, but uh, we still absolutely need to follow the measures, you know, the three W's, uh, wearing a mask, watching your distance and washing your hands and then avoiding in-person gatherings as much as possible. So that's at least on the community level. We still have hundreds of reports of cases and um, many deaths reported every day, but at the um, health system level, I'll defer to my colleagues. Yeah, I would say this is not a time for complacency. You know, we may be getting tired of this, but uh, I'll tell you, you know, it's always that light at the end of the tunnel. Is it a train coming or is it sunlight? And I can tell you now with the mitigation that's happened and the rates that we have right now and the vaccines and knowing that everybody is, you, you don't get out of a car right now to go to the grocery store without thinking about your mask. We are there right now. And if we can just hold this for a little bit longer while we're getting this vaccine and let's not get complacent because we'll take a step back. So right now is the time Boy, that light at the end of the tunnel is sun, but let's make sure we do the things that we that Rashmi was just talking about, the simple blocking and tackling to get us there this summer. We don't want to have another setback. That's, a, that's absolutely right. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. We want to hold on just a little bit longer um, so that we can ride this thing out and, and make sure that we keep as many people as safe as possible. We ask you to hold on. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Finding Common Ground. I've practiced medicine for nearly 40 years, and I'm still driven to come to work every day. Our team does whatever it takes for every patient we see, because our patients give us our purpose. Everywhere else, it's healthcare. Here. 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 It's personal.
Welcome back to Finding Common Ground, where we are talking about the vaccine and its impact, both at a national and local level. One question that I think is important is, what if you don't fall in the 1A category or the 1B category, and you're just an average person, when would you expect to, to be vaccinated or what can you do um, to get in line, so to speak? From a timeline perspective, we're, since we're just now entering uh, phase 1B, 1A started in December, and then we're just now entering phase 1B. And as um, we've, as uh, Kevin mentioned, there's you know close to 300,000 people in that population. So we're feverishly working to, um, to get through and vaccinate all those individuals. So we anticipate as a county probably not getting to phase 1C until April or May, so probably late spring. And, um, and so phase 1C will include persons who are um, between the ages of 16 and 64 who have underlying medical conditions. Mm. And then also those essential workers who uh, were not captured in the frontline categories. So those who are more involved in transportation and, um, and other sectors that are also very critical to moving our society forward. Um, and then after those phases, 1A through 1C are completed, then it'll open up to phase two. And that we're optimistic will be in the summer. I think everyone needs to understand that we need to have some patience here yes. and understand that the county and the, and the healthcare providers are doing the best they can with what they have. But patience is uh, probably one of the biggest words that's going to you're going to hear over and over and over again uh, through the spring. One question I have, too, is that, as Zena mentioned, I think there's this urgency to get in line. And how do we do that? And I, I know that some healthcare systems are sending messages out to patients, letting them know if, if you're interested, this is, you know, fill out this form. Um, and so I think there's a lot of people who don't want to miss their opportunity. Is there something um, blanketed that, that folks should be looking for in terms of email, in terms of communications from the county or websites they should be following for alerts to make sure that they have the most up-to-date information? Sure, certainly at the DuPage County Health Department website, we have a vaccine page, a COVID-19 vaccine page, and um, I think we'll be displaying that website. It's dupagehealth.org forward slash COVID-19 vaccine. And even just going on that page, there are many different tiles and there's one tile for vaccine registration. So you click on that and then you enter your information. And then part of the registration is selecting your category, whether it's age related or your occupation, um, education, or, you know, again, frontline, um, uh, you know, if you work in a grocery store. So there are options there to select your category. And then based on the category you select, then we are sending out information uh, as appointments become available. Now that's for the DuPage County Health Department uh, vaccine clinic, but we have, um, we're just one of um, so many uh, vaccine providers in DuPage County, including our health systems, who are really ramping up. I mean, they've been providing thousands of doses already um, for the past several weeks. And then we're now looking to expand into retail pharmacies and doctor's offices and uh, outpatient clinics. So you can also start by checking with your um, primary care provider and or your health system to see if they are already providing it and when uh, it'll be available based on your own eligib eligibility. But yeah, Kevin, Jonathan. Yeah, I would add just uh, 
many of us in the western suburbs in uh, Edward Elmhurst, uh, CDH, uh, DMG, we're on an uh, electronic medical record called EPIC, and we're using that um, to send out my chart messages and my chart invitations. I don't. I think what you're going to see different here in DuPage County than you've seen in Florida, you're not going to see long lines of people waiting in line. This is going to be a well-organized, well-distributed, so that we're going to send you an invitation to say we have a spot for you versus come wait in line and let's see at the end if we have a spot for you. And I know we're doing that. And Jonathan, I'm almost positive Edward Elmers is doing the same. Right. And I think one of the challenges is the, the difference between the 1A and the 1B category, you know, when we had to vaccinate our healthcare workers in the hospital, we kind of knew that we had enough vaccine for, for everyone. So it, we, we would just um, release the schedules. Anyone who wanted to sign up could sign up. The difference here is that the number of people in that 1B category is so huge. And the initial allocation with vaccine is just not enough to capture that. So there's no really subcategorization within 1B where we could say, uh, you know, the first 4,000, for instance, that have these conditions can get the vaccine. There's no way that it's allocated like that. So what, you know, some of the hospitals that I know uh, Edward Elmers has tried to do is, is come up with a system to risk stratify some of the patients and so they could send out those initial invitations to what they deem the best they can to the highest risk group within that 1B. Um, but the system's not perfect and it may miss people who are high risk. They may not get an invitation. So patience is a good word for this. Um, I guess we hope that as more vaccine rolls in and there's more allocation that more and more people in this category will be able to get it. But um, it's either that or having like a lottery system or a first come first serve system go on the Walgreens website, it's probably just a first come first serve system. So in a sense, you know, if it's risk stratified, it's a little more equitable. Um, but, uh, you know, there is no, there is no um, perfect way to do it. One of the risk stratifications that we're doing with the help of the county is looking at the vulnerable zip codes, looking at zip codes where we've seen high number of COVID patients, COVID patients and focusing our invitations on those patients right away. So that's one thing that we are doing. When it comes to invitations and people respond, just like an invitation that you get um, otherwise, do they get a chance to pick um, which vaccine they're getting? I would say no. Um, you, the mass vaccination clinics are either going to be Pfizer or Moderna, and uh, it's not. Um, we don't really have a choice of what vaccine that we're going to be allocated. And um, I would I would recommend that you get the first vaccine that's, uh, that's available yeah. to you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, CDC has not stated yeah. a preference between the two, and we're so lucky that both are have been shown to be highly efficacious um, in vaccine trials. So we're lucky that whichever one you get, you should just take it. It'll help you. Yeah. Are there any differences that that people should be either concerned about or aware about? It's really just the age. Of so uh, the Pfizer vaccine can be administered to persons 16 years and older, and then the Moderna vaccine is for 18 years and older, persons 18 and older. Um, really, the other differences are more from the vaccine provider perspective. The logistics are a little bit different. Um, and then the interval between the first and second dose is slightly different. The Pfizer vaccine, um, the second dose should be administered at 21 days or later, and then the Moderna vaccine should be administered at 28 days or later. Thank you. 
I think we're, we've talked a lot about what it probably feels like. Later, oh. it is recommended that the vaccine be administered as close to that time point as possible. So if it's the Pfizer, it should be more or less on the, exactly on that three-week time mark and for Moderna on the four-week time mark. But if it's not feasible to do that, then uh, you are allowed to extend that vaccine um, up to six weeks from that first dose. But it's recommended to get it as as it was originally scheduled in the study. We've been talking a lot about people lining up to get the vaccinations, but I think we all know that there's plenty of folks who don't want to get the vaccinations. And there's a lot of questions around why someone would feel that way. And um, as medical professionals that are you know, on the front lines of all of this, what are the things that you're hearing from patients in the community about uh, why folks are hesitant? They might be scared, nervous, um, suspicious. What are, what are some of the things that you're hearing in the community about why folks don't want to get the vaccination? I think vaccine well, hesitancy has been been out there since the beginning. You know, when we talked about the starting of making a vaccine and we talked about the fastest a vaccine has ever been made has been four years and that was the measles vaccine. And now they said, well, how can we make one in nine months? And as I said earlier, I think Jonathan can, can talk to this better than I can. You know, when you have 200 different entities around the world working on a vaccine, the brilliant minds, we had the genetic makeup of this, of this virus by January 9th of last year, just days into it. So we had some brilliant minds working on it. And I think people need to understand that their hesitancy because they think it was too fast should be discounted as much as possible because we have a lot better technology than we do now. And Jonathan, I'm sure you hear it every day. Sure, and I think you know the, what, what was moved quickly was the production uh, because we knew that uh, there was in, in federal investment in production so that the companies didn't have to take economic risk. So when the, all the scientific data was there and accumulated and the vaccine was being saved, the vaccine was already produced. That's unlike anything we've seen before. You know, otherwise, we probably would have had to wait another six months for the vaccine to be produced. But uh, the same science went into this vaccine that would go into any other vaccine. It had the same rigor. Um, a phase three trial with you know, 30,000 participants in one and 40,000 participants in, in the other. That's the same rigor of any other, any other vaccine that would go to market. What about side effects? How, are the, how do the side effects of, of this vaccine compare to other vaccines that we're all used to? You mentioned measles, um, you know, the MMR, um, chickenpox. What, how would the, the side effects compare to those? Yeah, they're basically similar to any other vaccine. As your body mounts an immune response, you do experience some, well, uh, some generalized symptoms. You might experience, you know, a headache or some achiness or a little fatigue. Um, it's usually pretty limited. You uh, resolves within three days, uh, within three days of your vaccination. And then there also might be some uh, local soreness um, where you at, at the injection site. Um, but beyond that, fortunately, there really haven't been any significant um, safety issues or concerns. Um, but yeah, Jonathan, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, you know, we have the uh, kind of the normal, what they call reactogenicity, which is what you're describing. You know, the, I think fever in 15%, chills in 40%. And, and this is a lot more common with a second dose because you've already seen and when by the time you get the second dose, you, you, you've already seen the, the vaccine, so you're responding more to it. But you're, 
it's true what Rashmi said, there has not been any um, severe adverse reactions. And I think in the trial, it was one in 200, but it was the same as the placebo group. Um, and you know, I think in a trial of 30,000, if you know it's safe for 30,000 people, um, you know, you have to think about what's, this, what's the safety of not taking the vaccine. You know, I think of, you know, at our hospital, we're looking at our employees, and 10% of our employees have already had COVID, uh, you know, one in 10. Um, and we're talking about 30,000 people getting this vaccine and not having any severe reactions. So, um, you know, the, and then if you look at allergic reactions, you know, in the trials, there wasn't really any signal for severe allergic reactions. After it went to market, um, MMWR recently looked at this, and I think they estimated it was about 2.5 per 1 million having an anaphylactic reaction uh, with no death. So the vaccine is very safe. And all I would do is look at the number of people that died from COVID and um, think about that. And no one has died from getting this vaccine. The other thing I would add is that, you know, the people that have vaccine hesitancy, if they're in that healthy group, by the time that they're in line for being vaccinated, this vaccine will be in the arms of millions and millions of people. So if they say the study was too small, it was only 30,000 people. By the time we get to the summer, whether it's 100 million or 150 million, it's going to be one of the largest, if not the largest vaccine study ever done, if I'm not mistaken, Jonathan, right? Absolutely. It's already been given to millions. Yeah, and just speaking of impact of the disease, I would just share that in DuPage County, we have already had over 67,000 um, cases of COVID-19 reported, and that sadly including over 1,000 deaths related to COVID-19. So we're at, as of today, we're at 1,090 deaths related to COVID-19. So absolutely, I mean, any you know transient side effects which are expected um, so you can ideally plan for it or, you know, kind of have your vaccine on a day where, you, especially for the second dose, you know, plan to um, not have too much um, scheduled for the next day or two so you can lay low and um, and just let your immune system respond. And uh, but, yeah, that's really nothing compared to the tragic uh, impact that this has had on our community and so many individuals. I think it's pretty rare to lose a day of work because of the fever from the vaccine. You know, I, I've known, you know, a lot of our, Thank you. you know, uh, our staff have gotten the vaccine. Most of our, most of our employees have gotten the vaccine. Um, and I hear about people having fevers, feeling a little achy for a day. Um, but, you know, getting sick enough to miss a day of work, that's very rare. I'll tell you one side effect they haven't talked about, and that's the optimism that people have. People are walking out of this shot with a smile on their face, knowing that they are making a difference right now and that we're closer to the end. So we might have a little bit of a sore arm, but I can tell you there's a lot more smiles and a lot more optimism that this shot gives as a side effect. Speaking of optimism, I think that there have been a lot of positives uh, in this pandemic. The three of you are from different medical organizations that oftentimes are competing, but seeing how people have come together in support of the greater good of finding a cure um, finding a vaccination for COVID-19, getting people safe, getting people back into a bit of normalcy in due time. The communities really come together, both at the local level, you know, at the state level, 
um, and now even at the national level. Can, can you speak to that and some of the things that you are proud of um, that what, from what you've seen? Yeah, I'll kick it off because I'm going I'm to add some great comments here. Um, we should all be very proud of living in DuPage County and what we're doing in DuPage County. We should be very proud of what we have done in partnership here. Um, I can't tell you, Rashmi I've known for a long time, but between Rashmi and Margaret Kierkegaard and Karen Ayala, the county now putting us all together, and like you said, many of us are competing. But we aren't competing at this point. As a matter of fact, we're sharing learnings. Tell us what you're doing with your ventilated patients now. Oh, we're not doing that anymore. We're proning them. Tell us what you're doing with steroids. We, we all got together as a community. We have calls every week to share learnings, to share frustrations, to share everything. And kudos to the county. And I'm sure, Jonathan, you might have something. Uh, Rashmi should just be blushing. But I mean, it's more about we've really worked well as a county uh, in this. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the vaccine rollout, we were very happy that um, we got our vaccines um, stored and delivered to us frozen, um, which was a virtually an effort, but, you know, allowed, allowed us to, um, you know, the, what we didn't say about this Pfizer vaccine is that if it's taken out of the freezer, it's only good for five days. So we were able to have it frozen so that we could plan our scheduling a little bit better without without uh, worrying about uh, you know, vaccine uh, uh, not being uh, good, without having to worry about throwing anything away, I should say. Yeah, it is. I mean, we're so fortunate uh, to have the robust partnerships that we have in the healthcare community, as well as you're talking about the municipal leaders and, um, and community members and our schools and really so many facets of our community have really come together um, to, to try to contain and, and break the cycle of transmission so that we can not only prevent illness, but then, you know, hopefully in the coming months, resume our as close to normal as we can of our lives. And um, really, it's, it's been a privilege to work with our partners here. And, um, and just, I know at each of our organizations, there have been such, there's been such a surge of um, courage, I think, where people really come through beyond what any of us expected. Um, just even the, like you're talking about the logistical challenges with vaccine um, receipt and delivery, you know, so many touch points and, and it's been really just a sight to behold um, it seeing all of that come through to fruition. And then, like you said, to witness, and I think we've been fortunate, you know, some of us to be recipients of the vaccine. And like you said, it's, it's a very moving experience and it's very worthy of celebrating. We want people as they receive their vaccine to share their story, you know, post on social media and, um, and share with your coworkers and your friends and your family, because it's really this opportunity to protect ourselves um, against COVID-19, the vaccine. We're so lucky to have this um, in our arsenal now to, um, to help prevent transmission in our community. So um, as Kevin was saying, and Jonathan, that we truly are in this together. It sounds so cliche, but really we've all been working so hard together um, as a community to, to try to prevent further transmission and to, to try to move through and beyond COVID-19. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise and your knowledge um, and your, your uh, energy around this. We together are coming together to find some common ground to keep our community safe. And um, the optimism um, 
that you mentioned, I think is, is prevalent. So thank you for joining us on this episode of Finding Common Ground. This episode of Finding Common Ground is brought to you in part by Edward Elmhurst Health. 